Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the LSE for those who have come from outside. And this is always an exciting occasion when Fred Halliday speaks to a public audience, and this is the first of two lectures which he is giving this month, uh, one tonight and one on the 30th of January. Uh, but I'm afraid also on this occasion it's slightly tinged with sadness because after 25 years uh, full-time as a professor at the school, uh, Fred is moving his centre of gravity uh, to Barcelona, though of course he will retain a connection with the school and will be back here from time to time. And I have to say that I will miss him greatly and the institution will uh, as well. Uh, because he has been a great citizen of the school, both um, in terms of his academic work, but also his willingness to take on other jobs, whether as a governor or helping with fundraising or whatever. Uh, and uh, not everyone, of not everybody, can that be said. And in my view, uh, his move to Barcelona is a far worse problem for London than was Thierry Henry's move uh, last year, though I expect Fred to do better in Barcelona uh, than Henri has. Uh, now, tonight he is speaking, as you will see, on social science and the Middle East, myths, pitfalls, and opportunities. And I have learnt over the last few years that it is a great mistake to try to forecast what Fred will say, uh, either in a lecture. Uh, or indeed in any environment. Um, and therefore, I am not going to do that uh, this evening. Um, his title stands in front of you as Fred Will uh, imminently, uh, and he will explain what it's all about. Fred. Thank you very much, Howard. Well, on the matter of Thierry Henry, uh, one of the things I have learned in my years at the LSE is wherever you go in the world, you will find LSE people. And uh, needless to say, the Barca football team has a committee of moral invigilation, whose job it is to deal with derelictions of duty and social conduct by the um, staff. And this consists of a very flinty group of Catalan bourgeois, mainly middle-aged ladies, uh, who take their job very seriously, one of whom is a, has a PhD from the LSE. Uh, and she took me one evening to Barca, where I'd never been before, and there we were with 90,000 people all shouting burro, donkey, at the players who weren't playing properly, and a very interesting evening it was indeed. Uh, and I suspect that looking around Barcelona, the head of the Caixa Catalunya Bank, may I say the mayor of Barcelona, who took the decision to convert the port into the wonderful area of beach bars and restaurants was an LSE person. Every time I go down there, I think it was an LSE person who took this decision long before they knew they had the Olympics. Well, Director, thank you very much for that kind introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, Director, colleagues and friends, first let me thank you for attending this lecture on what is for many a rather pressed first day of term. This is the first of two broad lectures I'm giving this term, and in it I want to discuss and make some case for the academic study of the Middle East and examine some of the opportunities and some of the pitfalls it presents, but also to argue something more broadly, that in a social science institution like the LSE, which is not primarily devoted to regional or area studies, nevertheless the study of specific regions and countries, among them the Middle East, 
has had and should continue to have an important place. As many of you know, and as the directors mentioned, I am moving to a research chair in Barcelona, but I do not see these talks as in any real sense valedictories or conclusions. My association with LSE goes back 20 years nearly before I became a member of staff when I was a master's student at SOAS and then doing a PhD here. And I would hope to continue to develop links between LSE and institutions in Spain and particularly in Catalonia and also to continue to supervise and teach here on a monthly basis per year with the International Relations Department. Needless to say, the LSE has been a very important, creative and supportive part of my life and it has done me what I regard as the greatest honour that British public life can confer to be a professor in this institution. I could not envisage life without a continuing link to it. And so this, rather than being a farewell, is a transitional, or to use an old word, a recessional, implying that there will be more sessions. Before moving to academic and intellectual issues, let me briefly resume the reasons for studying the Middle East in terms of public significance and public debate in this country. The Middle East, and this term I would include the 22 or so Arab states, plus Turkey, Israel, Iran, and now Afghanistan again, is the area of the third world or the non-European world which is closest to Europe. At the same time, the modern Middle East is in large measure a creation of European policies in the drawing of states and maps, in the forming and sustaining of states, institutions of power, and has also been the source of most of the main political ideas from the French Revolution onwards which have shaped political life in the region, be they nationalism, revolution, socialism, fascism, populism in a secular and also religious form. And here I want to first of all focus on two issues. First of all, what I take to be our responsibilities, political and moral, to the region and its peoples. And secondly, something we need constantly reminding of, the impact of the Middle East on Europe and on this country. First of all, on responsibility. What we call Europe and the Middle East are, of course, like all such geographical terms, artificial projections by human beings, but they're also reasonable terms, and I have no difficulty in using them. And they have been in interaction in one form or another for thousands of years. Uh, not only has Europe taken its three major religions from that region, but it is a curious fact that the oldest place of worship in London, in Great Victoria Street in the city, is a temple to the Persian god Mithras from the 2nd century AD, his cult being common among Persian soldiers and also merchants in the Roman Empire. Within 10 minutes' walk of LSE, stands the 14th century temple church erected by the Knights Templar. There's also a pub named after them, by the way, now in Drury Lane. Uh, or, no, in, in, sorry, in, in, anyway, nearby, uh, who uh, were, of course, the Crusaders. Our responsibilities today towards the Middle East may not be greater than they are to the rest of the world or to our European partners, but they are equal to help as far as we can without overstating Europe's and Britain's potential in ensuring the peace, stability, and prosperity of the region, and in maintaining, in regard to the 400 million people of this region, the same commitment to international law, to democratic freedoms, and human rights that we apply to ourselves and the rest of the world. One of the most pernicious myths of the contemporary era, one sustained by fanatics and bigots in the Middle East, as much as in the post-imperial and ever-arrogant West, is that somehow the peoples of the non-Atlantic world and in particular the peoples of the Middle East, are exempt from, indifferent to, unaware of the basic rights that we and our countries have fought for over centuries of social struggle and revolt and collective political action, and also in the wars of the 20th century. 
An elementary commitment to international law, to universal codes of human rights as defined by the various covenants of the UN, and a basic knowledge of human beings, let alone familiarity with these countries, and I have visited every single country in the Middle East, would suggest the opposite. Of course, every country has its own particular cultural, legal, and historic features, as do individuals. But the right to independence, to decent government, to individual security, to education, to basic human respect and equality are as universal as the rising and setting of the sun. All nationalisms, even the most benign, such as those of the countries of Scandinavia, presume an element of superiority for their peoples, and the Middle East is no exception. Everyone thinks they're a bit better than everyone else. Yet the basic complaint of Middle Eastern peoples and the underpinning of all the nationalist movements and struggles the region has paid host to, whether it's Arab, Iranian, Jewish, Turkish, Kurdish, Armenian, is not that their peoples are entitled to special treatment, but that they're entitled to equal treatment with the rest of the world. That commitment, the subject of the outstanding Center for the Study of Human Rights that we have at LSE, in which I had the privilege of being the first director, contradicts and overrides all the claptrap we have heard in recent years about the clash of irreconcilable civilizations, about cultural relativism, about faith communities, and other neo-obscurantist regression to which too many in political life, as in universities and the press, have ceded ground. Let me now turn to the second general point I wish to make concerning the impact on Europe of this region. Most obviously, in a way that is not true for another part of the world, the Middle East borders and conflicts abut onto Europe. Its migrants increasingly inhabit European cities. You can get on a train or a bus and go there, as I did when I was a student 42 years ago. With my NUS travel card, I'd travel for two days by boat from Istanbul to Trabzon for the equivalent of one pound. In four hours of air travel from London, you could be in half the countries of the region. In centuries past, as I say, it provided its, its major, our major religions and to some degree still defines a part of our values. And of course, today the Middle East accounts for and will probably continue to account for much of Europe's energy needs, many of its markets, and much of its investment capital. However, there is another side to this. Most of the hard drugs on our streets, and which have killed many of our young people, and will surely kill more, come from or through this region. In issues of conflict, Europe and the Middle East are also locked together, most evidently in the current conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. In the past century, it should not be forgotten that it is Europe which has visited much more violence in the Middle East than the Middle East has visited on Europe. But this should not overshadow or negate the very real and in all likelihood long-lasting threat which Islamist extreme violence poses to our societies today as of course it does on a far larger scale to Middle Eastern societies themselves. In terms of recent and contemporary political debate, the Middle East is of great and recurrent significance, even if the number of those qualified to speak on it in a sensible way or who have knowledge of its history or languages are very and alarmingly few. If you look at the major countries of Europe, then the impact of the Middle East on them has in recent times been immense. The Fourth French Republic fell exactly 50 years ago in 1958 because of the war in Algeria, even as Sarkozy was elected as president last year on the back of an anti-Maghrebi and anti-Turkish sentiment in France. The Soviet Union fell for a variety of reasons, but the war in Afghanistan, the bleeding wound, which Gorbachev called it, certainly played its part in delegitimating the state, the army, and a sense of inevitable communist progress. The history of Spain 
and the collapse of the monarchy in the early part of the 20th century result in large part of growing tensions of the Spanish army's wars and defeats in Morocco, led, of course, to General Franco's coup of July 1936, which began, we should recall, in North Africa itself. The impact of the Middle East on the USA has also been considerable. It was the Iranian hostage crisis of 1979-81 and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan that destroyed the credibility of President Jimmy Carter, and it was discovery of current dealings with Tehran in the Irangate scandal that in the mid-80s tarnished more than anything else the reputation of the Reagan administration. As for the presidency of George W. Bush, we can only think on the one hand of the impact of 9-11 in 2001 and of the war raging in Iraq since 2003 to see how far the politics and the reputation of the current president have been irrevocably marked by the region and by his failures in it. As for Britain, the two greatest political divides of the post-World War II era have concerned the Middle East, Suez in 1956 and the Iraq War of today. Indeed, the Middle East has ended the political lives of, or at least severely discredited, no less than three British prime ministers in modern times. Lloyd George, who led Britain to victory in World War I and successfully negotiated the Treaty of Independence with Ireland, was to fall in October 1922 over the Chanak crisis. The failure of the British government to honour its commitment to prevent a Turkish national advance into the town of Chanak near Istanbul. Anthony Eden, Prime Minister during Suez in 1956, had to leave office a few weeks later in ignominy once the USA opposed the invasion of Egypt which he had planned in secret with France and Israel. Most recently, Tony Blair, a man of considerable intelligence and principle, with plenty of political courage, and whom I voted for on all three occasions which I could, and on the advisory council of whose foreign policy center, when established by him and Robin Cook in 1997, I agreed to serve, has made the most disastrous error of his career in aligning Britain with the invasion of Iraq, drawing this country into war that is as unpopular within the armed forces as is within the public at large, and which has done Britain immense harm across the Middle East and the Muslim world. This is arguably the biggest mistake of any British Prime Minister in modern history. It is too early to judge Blair's premiership as a whole, and much will depend on how things turn out in Iraq. But even were the current Baghdad regime to survive, something that is improbable but not impossible, and which in my view is, given the alternatives, in broad terms desirable, the dismal record of miscalculation, misinformation and delusion about American intentions and policy and preparedness as much as about Iraq will remain, as will Blair's extraordinary and in my view scandalous indulgence of corruption in dealings between British arms companies and Middle Eastern states. Those who have followed recent press coverage of the British departure from Basra and the extraordinary and unconvincing arguments, indeed the brazen falsifications put up by official spokesmen on this matter, can only lament the degeneration of official discourse and veracity which the Iraq war has revealed. Here we may recall the words of one of my teachers at SOAS, the noted historian of the Middle East, a man of moderate temperament, Professor Malcolm Yap, in regard to the overall British record in the region, kicked out, bowed out, and ran out. And in the case of Iraq, the first kicked out and the last ran out certainly apply. 
So for this reason, and for all the reasons mentioned above, this is a region whose contemporary politics, economics, and culture we should certainly not ignore. Against this background, we may recall what makes LSE such a unique and valuable place in regard to the Middle East and in regard to other troubled areas of the world. We are an independent institution. We are a secular institution. We are not a home counties institution. There are no judges, generals, or bishops on the walls of LSE, and thank heavens for that. Uh, We do pursue, whatever the difficulties, sustained and high-level research and teaching in the region, and we do have a large number of alumni from the region working as expatriates in the region who represent the skills and vision of the school, be it in Iran, be it in Israel, be it in Turkey, be it in Afghanistan. I took a group of LSE students to Sudan in 2005. Uh, The great-granddaughter of the Mahdi, who was a minister, had done an MSc in the Social Policy Department. The political attaché to the American Embassy had done a PhD in the Anthropology Department. The head of the UNDP, a Japanese economist, had done an MSc in the Economics Department. And the deputy head of the Political Science Department of the University had done a PhD. And as his uncle was in charge of the presidential carpool and the president was out of the country at the time, uh, he arranged for two limousines with smartly dressed drivers to be waiting for us on the tarmac of the airport uh, when we arrived. At LSE, we provide, with some ups and downs, a context, quite a unique one, for free and open discussion of the region. LSE is, as many students from the region have noted, a special, perhaps unique place when it comes to meeting people from different sides of the conflict. And this is something very valuable, which it would only take a few idiots to destroy in a short period of time. For this reason, as well as for general reasons of intellectual and academic openness, I am personally opposed to and would never accept forms of boycott and refusal to engage with any country in the region and would make clear my refusal to accept any such limits. In the past three years alone, I've lectured at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and I've met representatives of Hezbollah and of Hamas. I have in earlier times lectured in the Islamic Republic of Iran and indeed in the Saddam Hussein College of Law and Politics in Baghdad. This kind of engagement I consider to be part of my job, to engage, to listen, to argue, indeed to promote disagreement based on prior understanding. This is an important part of any international university and of those who work in it. In this too, in the sustaining of the intellectual values we have and of a broad humanistic, universalistic, and may I add and emphasize and hopefully forever secular perspective of our founders and predecessors, we have a major responsibility to bear and sustain, not least in regard to the Middle East and those who live and work in it. As all of you know, one of the secrets of being a professor in a university of this kind is that you learn at least as much from your students as they learn from you. The difference is, of course, that you are paid. Uh, And I have had the great pleasure of meeting students from many different countries and learning much from them. I remember once needing to get a sense, not just of the words and etymology, but of the resonance of different words in Middle Eastern languages for the word heritage, quite a complex and also very recently resuscitated word, something no library and no website will ever tell you. So I contacted a Turkish student, an Israeli student, a Persian and an Arab, and within 24 hours had the information on my desk. 
Perhaps nothing illustrates a different character and the cultural individuality of these students more than the presence which they bring upon graduation or the completion of a PhD or at the end of the year or a specific national holiday such as 21st of March, Nuruz, the start of the Persian New Year. The Iraqis and the Gulf Arabs bring dates. The Yemenis bring coffee. The Sudanese bring works of carved ebony. The Egyptians bring falafel. The Israelis bring CDs or honey. The Shamis, the Lebanese, the Syrians, the Jordanians, the Palestinians bring helwiat, baklava, another nut and honey-laden sweets. The Turks bring luhum, what we call Turkish delight, or raki. And the Armenians, of course, bring brandy. Indeed, I still have in my office a bottle of Armenian brandy uh, bottled in the USSR. In broader terms, we have to recognize that this school has had an association with the Middle East going back for many years. We have many colleagues, over I think a dozen now, working on different Middle Eastern topics, uh, and long may this continue to be the case. And I recall when I was a student at SOAS in 1967 making the weekly voyage, even a hajj, to a now disappeared room along the corridor here to listen to the then dominant figure in the study of the region within the University of London, Professor Ali Kaduri. I still retain and use the notes of his course and would recall with some regret the words which on 13th of March 1968 I record him as having concluded his lectures. Well, he said, this is a sad story, but there it is. That four months after Professor Kaduri pronounced these words in July 1968, the city of his origin, Baghdad, and the country he devoted so much care to analyzing Iraq was then taken over by the bloodthirsty dictatorship of the Ba'ath Party and who would remain in power till March 2003, a good 35 years, was only to confirm his judgment. Yet even this span of 40 years does not do full justice to the association of LSE with the Middle East. Because if we look at the history of both entities, the former as an independent center for the study of the social sciences, the latter is a definable and identifiable region, we will discover, perhaps surprisingly, and I suspect most of you will balk at this, but I intend to say it, being a good modernist, the LSE and the Middle East are, despite first appearances, roughly of the same age. But the LSE is a little bit older, six or seven years older than the distinct region which we now call Middle East. Both LSE and the Middle East were products of the international and intellectual climate of the two decades prior to World War I, the school being founded in 1895 by the Fabians to promote the study of what were termed the five E's, empire, education, efficiency, equality, and, of course, economics. As of the term Middle East, it was first used in 1902 by the American strategist Admiral Mahan in an article in the London Review as part of his debate with the LSE's expert and later director on geopolitics, Sir Halford Mackinder. Mackinder, who, as is well known, wanted to make LSE a training ground for colonial administrators, in his own dreadful joke, a Mackinder garden, uh, <laughs> believed that the history of the 20th century would be shaped by control of what he termed the heartland, the vast continental mass of Central Asia, where at that time Britain and Russia were vying for control in the great game. Mayan believed that it would be sea power, on the other hand, to control of sea routes, particularly from the Mediterranean through to the Indian Ocean, that would be decisive. Well, in the swathe of 20th century history, in the light of the battles of the Atlantic and the Pacific, of the Dardanelles and of World War II in North Africa, it would seem that the argument has gone to Mahan. 
But it may ironically turn out that given the pivotal place in recent years of Afghanistan and of Pakistan, a country that was not did not exist a century ago, and given the contemporary, today's competing roles of Russia, China, Iran, and the USA, world history in the coming epoch will be shaped, at least to a considerable extent, by developments in Mackinder's heartland. This is certainly the initial declaration of intent of no less a person than Senator Barack Obama, who, while calling for a speedy withdrawal from Iraq, has committed the United States as his top foreign policy priority to victory in Afghanistan, something I think is unattainable, uh, but not a matter on which I would radically dissent from his intentions. Either way, be it in the original formulation, indeed invention of the Middle East, or in the geostrategic uncertainties that beset us today, our former director's intuitions have played their part in defining and understanding the politics of the region. And it is a sad reflection on the history of the school that the late Mrs. Benazir Bhutto visited the school in 2000 to speak uh, to a very uh, excited audience of students and also members of her own party. She played the trick of coming an hour and a half late. She rang, I arranged the meeting and she rang me up from Hyde Park Corner to say she'd lost her lecture notes and had to go home. All of this, of course, was a way of getting the meeting to be more uh, enthusiastic when she came and a very memorable evening was had by all. For these reasons and for the long association we have, we can say with justice of the London School of Economics and of the Middle East that they have in one way or another been partners since their inception and remain, as we move into the second century of each, coeval and interlocked. Here I would like to say something about our capabilities and experience in raising support and funds for the study of the Middle East. In the autumn of 2006, the research committee of the school authorized, in principle, the setting up at the school of a Middle Eastern center. And I was asked to take charge on a temporary basis of this venture, which I happily did. As I shall be leaving at the end of March, I shall submit a detailed report to the research committee on this matter and would just here summarize one or two points. I've been engaged with the Office of Development and Research, ODAR, and its predecessors, and with successive directors in trying to raise money from the region for over a decade, and most recently in the context of our aim to set up a Middle East Center. In this regard, I've made over a dozen trips, which we got others to pay for, uh, to the region uh, in pursuit of contacts and funds. I believe we should continue and develop these efforts and that we should sustain the existing informal program that we have while looking for broader and more formal funding and support. In this regard, looking back over the past decade, we can note some major successes, among them the establishment of a Turkish chair, a major program of 1.5 million supported by the EU and DFID for Palestinian trade negotiators in the event of the carrying out of the Oslo Accords and its successes, a major, if informal program in Afghanistan. Some of the key people in Afghanistan in recent years have been LSE graduates. A major gift by the Kuwait Fund for, the, for Academic Studies of over six million pounds to the Center for the Study of Global Government. Major donations to the library and to new academic building by donors with Middle Eastern interests. And two million pounds in scholarships from Abraj Capital, run by alumni of ours in Dubai, uh, for scholarships for students from the region. These are major achievements for which Dr. Mary Blair and successive directors, Tony Giddens and Howard Davis, should take credit and which, with which I'm very glad to be associated. Same time, we must learn from some of our less happy experiences. 
we have to sustain a clear sense of our priorities and independence and some degree of caution about the agenda, seriousness, and professionalism of those associated with the region who offer us funding and a degree of exigence, if not vigilance, with regard to some of those who volunteer to help us. Many are serious and committed, but some are not. And indeed, some of the foundations we have de we've had dealings with in recent times have been endowed with more money and a sense of self-importance than they have either good sense or, may I say, good manners. Uh, we have gained enormously from contact with foundations and contacts in the region, and many of them have more than pulled their weight. But there has been a minority of those who have wasted our time and led us on many a highway and byway. A caravan of mountebanks and flibbity gibbets, may I say, who it has been our fate to encounter host and humor so far to little effect. But let us not forget, we are not the demandeurs, they are. We do not need donors who prohibit us from collaborating with other countries and institutions in the region. We do not welcome funders who forbid us to use the word democracy. We can do without donors who endow chairs and then consider themselves entitled on the basis of no qualification or respect to insult the research topics of our PhD students and indeed of their supervisors, not least myself. We do not want large windbag PR-oriented conferences. We should not go groveling to the whims and prejudices of expatriate and diaspora communities. We do not need students or staff who abuse their freedoms as individuals within the LSE to misappropriate the name and reputation of the school for controversial causes and seek to impose their policies on others. Equally, we do not need alumni and donors who object to the exercise by staff and students of these freedoms. We do not need associates who oppose and badmouth major projects of the school when they have been approved by the director, by senior staff such as by myself and by relevant committees. We have a job to do and we do it well, but it is up to us to seek resources that are compatible with that job. And at the end of the day, I would put it this way, there are many rich people in the world and many foundations and donors with more money and ideas. There is only one LSE. I shall never forget it, and I hope you don't either. Let me now turn to the more specific issues of intellectual engagement. The school, as I say, has carried out research and teaching for many years. Not only would I mention Professor Kaduri, but Professor Ernest Gellner, who worked on the sociology of Muslim societies, Professor Matthew Anderson, major historian of the Ottoman Empire. The list of books and PhDs by LSE students and staff and PhD writers over the years on the Middle East is very impressive. Let me now try and draw out some more general arguments. First of all, I would want to make a general case, not specific to the Middle East, for specialist teaching and research on countries and regions. Social science cannot remain at the level of abstraction, be it in economics, IR theory, political science, management, or anything else. The teaching and research on distinct regions of the world with the necessary historical, linguistic, cultural, and other specialist knowledge associated with this should be a part of the program of any broad social science institution. Area studies in the more formal, perhaps traditional sense, should remain the concern of specialist colleges, such as in London University, the Institute for the Study of the Americas, CIS for Eastern Europe and Russia, and SOAS, of which I am also a graduate. But in a program which offers broad theoretical, methodological, and comparative teaching at undergraduate and postgraduate level to students, 
which is by general orientation general and theoretical, there should also be provision for study in greater depth of particular countries and regions. This is not so only because of student demand and public demand for knowledge of these areas, but also because, as classical social theorists, even economists know well, and as too many contemporary theorists have forgotten, the task of theory is in the end to explicate and explain and guide action in the world in which we live. We look across the range of general, often theoretical, or general topics sought at LSE in what are now, by my latest count, no less than 24 different subject departments and centers. Is the once obvious how, in a two-way process of interaction, the study of particular regions can benefit from the comparative and theoretical investigation of such subjects, even as theories and paradigms themselves can be tested and challenged by encounter with specific countries. To take a random selection of topics from my own department, the causes of war, the role of great powers, the impact or lack thereof of international institutions, the role of domestic factors in foreign policy, the interaction of regional political with economic forces, the role of non-state groups, be they civil society organizations, religious bodies, or militarized opponents of existing states. Indeed, the whole gamut of questions taught by international relations in general or by specific theoretical approaches such as historical sociology, international political economy, or the state-centered approach in our discipline, which we call realism, all can be applied to and in a reflexive manner enriched by being applied to the Middle East. The same exercise can be applied to most, if not all, of the specialisms and departments and centers at LSE. To make this general case, is, however, to run up against a number of obstacles, two of which I shall mention here. One is the trend increasingly evident in disciplines such as economics and political science, but now spreading its shadow, nefariously so in my view, across the social sciences as a whole, of forms and theory, of theory and methodology that are abstract and without purchase on particular societies. This is reinforced throughout the contemporary academic world, particularly the English-speaking academic world, of a devaluation when not neglect and disparagement of the skills associated with country and regional specific work languages, knowledge of history, sensitivity to culture, except, and I shall return to this in a distorted and inflated form, straightforward experience of living in and working on particular countries. To make the case for the study of the Middle East, indeed for any country or region, involves taking on this form of abstraction and deracination and the implications they have for job descriptions, appointments, promotion, and publication, in a word for how we as academics and intellectuals value our colleagues and our work. To say that this disparagement of area studies, indeed of any engagement with particularity and variety, is most evident in the USA is obvious. But there are many in U.S. universities who resist it and would benefit from our support, and many, far too many, on this side of the Atlantic who embrace and enforce it. I would much more highly value a job candidate or aspirant to promotion who could read or speak a foreign language, had lived and researched in other countries and cultures, who had sat in a village in Yemen, or a favela in Brazil, or even worked for a year or two in Moscow or Rome, than someone who had been cited in a supposedly top-ranking disciplinary and mathematological journal. But as we all know, this is not the way it is going or is likely to go. The other major obstacle is one specific to or particularly prevalent in the study of the Middle East, and that is the overstatement of particularism, basically the denial that the Middle East can be compared to anywhere else. This is based on the denial of the ability to apply general social science categories to the region and is sometimes, I think, abusively and mistakenly referred to as Orientalism. Coming as I do from a generation that learnt among their teachers from Albert Hurani, 
Maxi Bolanson, Bernard Lewis, Elie Dury, and Lambton, and others, uh, I give the term Orientalism some respect. Being accused, in my case, of being Orientalist is a bit like being accused of other things which are insulting, uh, but which I would not seek to push away. A mediadon, or a liberal, or an eclectic, or a feminist, or a humanist. These are all titles which may not fit very accurately, but I'm not going to reject them, and nor will I reject the term Orientalist. Where I would diverge from the rigidity of some earlier historians and social scientists is in asserting that in many, indeed most respects, the Middle East is not that peculiar or unique or different from the rest of the world. All religions, all regions and countries, as I've said, indeed all nine billion of the people who live in this world have their own particularities and all for sure think of themselves as more distinct, more autonomous, more wonderful than they are. So it is with the Middle East. Every country, like every individual, puts on their own clothes. What in London is an English breakfast becomes in Scotland a Scottish breakfast, in Ireland an Irish breakfast, and in Sydney, Australian beach, Tucker. But it remains more or less the same breakfast. Most countries seek to give their national airlines, not to mention their parliaments, culturally and historically specific names. But they all do more or less the same thing. Shura and Majlis, Knesset and Duma, Ural and Doyle, Reichstag and Cortes are parliamentary bodies whose variety, such as it is, derives not from the cultural history of the country, but from the political character of the state within which they are located. In regard to the Middle East, all sorts of delusions about its particularity can be found. First of all, the idea that the Middle East has to be explained in terms of long-term historical roots and trends. This is a tendency found among Orientalists, but is also replicated, as all of you know, in the political rhetoric of the region itself and according to which the Middle East of today, the states, political forces, ideologies, the violence, can only be explained by going back into the mists of time, the identification of long-standing historical forces, mentalities, and conflicts. But the forces that have shaped the modern Middle East, the region of 26 or so states within it, are modern, contemporary, and international forces, be they the Industrial Revolution, colonialism, world war, cold war, nationalism, socialism, and now globalization. In the spirit of Karl Popper and the formulation of falsifiable propositions, I would argue that nothing which has happened in the Middle East since 1918, since, sorry, before 1918, when the current state system was established, is relevant to explaining the Middle East today. Everything begins with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the creation of the state system and of the modern authoritarian regimes of Turkey and Iran and Saudi Arabia thereafter. I stress this is falsifiable, and I can think of exceptions myself, but I think it is a much better place to start than going back into the mists of time or what holy books say or what the indigenous nature of people is and all the rest of it. Secondly, for all the violence and conflict of the region, it is far from being, in terms of the incidence of interstate war or deaths in conflict in modern times, the bloodiest part of the world. The only really bloody conflict of the modern Middle East by global standards is the Iran-Iraq War of 1980-1988, when several hundred thousand people, perhaps a million, died. This is what I, with somewhat pedantic precision, term the Second Gulf War, that in Iraq since, 19, since 2003 being the fourth, uh, and the one over Kuwait being the third. This war does compare to the wars of Korea and Vietnam, Southern Africa, or Central America, but let us not forget that the bloodiest wars of all of modern time have been in Europe. 
Thirdly, the range of inter-ethnic and inter-religious conflicts there, of which the Arab-Israeli conflict is one, but only one among many, and is far from being the determinant of everything that happens to the region, these conflicts are not substantially different for all their rhetoric and all the religious talk related to them, nor are they, in my view, more impossible of solution than those of other parts of the world. These issues are not more complex. God has nothing to do with them. What is lacking is political will within the region and internationally. In the face of these obstacles, the disparagement of regional country-specific knowledge and engagement with the place of the Middle East in broader historical context, I would return to my central theme, that the kinds of theoretically rigorous and comparative social science disciplines taught at LSE and in all 24 of LSE's current divisions and departments from development, social policy, economic history, to management, gender, global governance, and so forth, require engagement with the region of the importance and proximity of the Middle East, even as the study of the region, which should once and for all shed its particular cobwebs, would benefit from and indeed requires awareness of such broader intellectual and disciplinary frameworks. In this regard, let me briefly lay out four substantive analytic themes. First, to return to the question of history. We need to see this region not in its millennial abstraction and mystification, but like Europe, Latin America, East Asia, a product of modern international economic, political, and social forces. Of course, history is essential to explaining the map that we have and the conflicts within it and the character of states and economies, but this is modern world history, not the invocation of timeless and hypostatized forces. As in Europe, some contemporary Middle Eastern states have a greater degree of continuity with those of a thousand years ago than others. Iran, Oman, Yemen, Egypt, and Morocco can claim in some way or another to be continuous with states that were there a thousand years ago. But the character of these states, the nature of the state, the nature of the social divisions, the nature of the economy, the nature of the cities, the nature of the communications, and the activities they engage in owe little or nothing beyond the symbolic to earlier times. Here, of course, the invocation of timeless and atavistic history receives great reinforcement from the invocation of religion and culture, as if holy texts and unshifting identities could explain contemporary political and social behavior. But neither Ayatollah Khomeini, the leader of the Iranian revolution of now 30 years ago, nor Osama bin Laden, can be understood by reading ancient books or dredging up medieval thought patterns, much as they pretend they can. They are, in the context of their ideology, in their mode of political action, in their use of violence, in their invocation of nationalist and populist themes, not least hostility to foreign occupation, and most importantly, in their stated objective, which is to capture and get hold of and keep control of states, very much part of the modern world. Like nationalists and fundamentalist politicians elsewhere, they use, select, interpret, and often invent elements from the past to meet contemporary ends, to mobilize their supporters in pursuit of power, but they are not products of this ancient history. Secondly, the question of states. As in all politics and international relations, the starting point for the study of the region should be the state. This seen in historical, sociological terms as the institution of coercion, administration, and territorial limitation. It is shapes, states that shape identities, religions, and economies, and not the other way around. But here we, again, we're not dealing with anything particularistic. There's no such thing as the Middle Eastern state, the Oriental state, the Arab state, the Islamic state, the Jewish state, or anything else. 
These are entities which rule, coerce, tax, spend, mobilize in the modern regional international context in which they find themselves much as anywhere else. And we can always here fall into the trap of particularism. Why have the Arabs not united? We're endlessly asked. But Latin America didn't unite. Africa didn't unite. And let's not kid ourselves, Europe isn't really united either, although a degree of helpful intergovernmental cooperation exists and hopefully will continue. Equally importantly, it is the desire to control states, or at least to set up their own separate states, that drives many of the opposition movements in the region, whether they're the Kurds, the Palestinians, the southern Sudanese, and earlier, until 1948, when they achieved it, the Zionist movement in Palestine. It is this, the desire to do something entirely modern, to control the territory of the people in the state, that explains the politics of these opposition groups, whether they are democratic, authoritarian, or insurrectionary. Let me now come back to the question of what is called culture, one of the four most difficult words in the English language to define, as the great literary critic Raymond Williams once pointed out. Clearly, in China, in Poland, in Ireland, in the Midwest states of the USA, issues of culture and religion do matter in explaining political attitudes and behavior. But culture, broadly defined, including religion, does not explain modern politics, social behavior, or international relations. Nor can the cultural legacy or past of a country explain its character today. I recall being in an airline queue in Mallorca, and the people in front of me were French tourists, complaining bitterly about how the English, avec le ragout, with their stews, had ruined the restaurants and hotels of the island. And then one of them said to the other, Mais qu'est-ce que vous voulez? C'est là qui ont beaucoup de gens d'arc. What do you expect? The British burnt Joan of Arc. And this is supposed to explain the character of the hotel menu in Mallorca today. <laughs> and we can think of many, many other examples. The X's are always like this. The Y's are always like that. And as any of you who travel or any of you who live in a multi-ethnic, multicultural university like the LSE will know, you can't get through the day without making some broad ethnic generalizations about the X's and the Y's, even if you don't always repeat them. Uh, there's a nice Middle Eastern story of the Americans send a mission to study the political culture of the Middle East, and to be fair, equal opportunities. They ask the same question in each country. So they go to Saudi Arabia and they say, what's two plus two? And then people go, mashallah, whatever God wants. They go to Egypt where they know how to look after tourists and the guy says, anything, we'll fix any total you want. Five, six, two hundred, don't get anything, we'll fix it for you. <laughs> then they go to Israel and they say, what's two plus two? And they go, ah, lo, this is a nightmare. You want two states, now you want four states, this is a conspiracy. <laughs> then they finally go to Lebanon. Two plus two. And the man says, two plus two? Tell me, are you buying or are you selling? <laughs> So culture clearly does matter. It matters also in terms of solidarity. And what, who do you identify with? It matters as far as the language of politics is concerned. And having lived for the last three years uh, back and forth, a caballo, as they say in Spanish, on horseback between Spain and Britain, and specifically in Catalonia and Britain, I cannot help noticing many cultural differences, many of them of an amusing kind. Far too much of the study of the contemporary Middle East takes culture as a given, as in social science terms, an independent and explanatory variable. Indeed, seeing culture as explaining the modern domestic and international forces of these countries. 
But it is these forces which are much more important than is conventionally realized in determining the selection and definition of Islamic ideology or of Jewish tradition or of Persian imperial nostalgia or whatever it is. And it is the reaction to foreign control and influence, real and imagined, that explains much of the program of the political movements in these countries. Many people are asking today, what is the role of culture in international relations? Most famously, Samuel Huntington's book, The Clash of Civilizations, published this, well, the article in 1993. A very sloppy and, in my view, irresponsible book. But the most interesting question is not what is the role of culture in international relations, which is very small, but how have global forces, how have international relations, in all their variety, shaped culture by producing religious forms of nationalism and populism, shaping vocabulary, shaping reforms of religion, as well as forms of state, society, and economy. Finally, fourthly, or not finally, but fourthly, amidst all the talk of Islam, ethnic hatred, history, culture, and so on, it's easy to forget the role, important in many cases, not determinant of economic factors. One of the best introductory moves in understanding the modern Middle East, how it was formed, why it is the social and political forms it has is to study economic history. Here the importance of the work of such writers as Charles Isawi, Roger Owen, Chala Keda, Galal Amin, and in the person of our first and current incumbent in the chair of Turkish studies at LSE, Professor Shevket Pamuk, uh, we find ourselves on somewhat more secure ground. If you want to understand why and how external powers have dominated, partitions, controlled and intervened in the region, then economic factors remain central, not solely determinant, not even in the invasion of Iraq, but as central to the story, not only in regard to oil and gas extraction, themselves the largest industry in the world, but also to the formation of markets, of cities, the transformation of countrysides, and the recycling and reinvestment of oil revenues. At the same time, and here we come back to the darker side of the story, the second largest commodity in value terms traded in the world is, of course, drugs. And here, too, Middle Eastern societies, producers such as Afghanistan, and countries with the transit of money and drugs themselves, which includes many countries in the Middle East, including some supposedly close allies in the United Kingdom, uh, are central to the world market. For all the talk of how different, unique, culturally specific the Arab world or Iran are, it is money in terms of rent appropriation, corruption, pure greed, the, the, the search for profit as everywhere else in the world, which, and also the ostentatious and culturally questionable spending of many Middle Eastern states that explains what goes on. It's often forgotten amid all this talk about values and Islam that all Middle Eastern societies and all, Middle, all Muslim societies are capitalist societies as well as ones divided by those who have or have not got access to money, in other words, by class. The focus on economics can also help to enable us to understand somewhat more clearly the nature of some of the states which have now acquired great prominence in our vision, which are the states of the Gulf, by which so much writing, much of it inaccurate and indulgent has been provided. These are not old-style dictatorships. They do not kill. They are not Iraqi or Syrian or Iranian or even Egyptian uh, oppressive states. Rather, they are what the late John Rawls in his the, um, the, 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 the Rights of Peoples calls well-ordered authoritarian states like Singapore. It, but in this case, as in Singapore, we should be careful about imposing optimistic 
visions on what is happening. All the talk of a transition to democracy, of financial transparency, of emerging this, that, and the other should be taken with a pinch of salt until and unless there are available figures of a credible kind on the finances of the state and their disbursement and unless the press and media in these countries are freed from the censorship and self-censorship that prevails. All of us who know and work in such countries know that we're a long way from that. And indeed, the more money there is, the more there is to hide. All in all, the censorship policies of governments, the collusion and self-interested silence of banks and corporations, and not least the timidity and vapidity of the expatriate media only serve to preserve this war of silence. One can look throughout, throughout years of the foreign language and local papers and specialist weeklies without finding any discussion of corruption, of embezzlement, of council contracts, the mistreatment of migrant workers, the denial of gay and women's rights, of censorship of books and internet sites. No wonder that one of my former students, now a senior advisor at the Middle Eastern Bank, refers to himself as Abu Dekor, the father of interior decoration. He says there is no unemployment, there is no corruption, uh, there is no inflation, everything is fine and everything is going up. A dose of economic realism would also help us to dispel some of the propaganda, when not nonsense, that has been diffused in recent years about a supposedly different kind of banking system, so-called Islamic economics, uh, arising out of the Iranian Revolution or now from the Gulf states. Here, as much as in the exercise of political power or the subjugation of women, we can see how supposedly religious or cultural values are used to rebrand what are, on closer examination, universal forms of resource and power manipulation. Anyone who has studied the economic history of the Muslim world, from the trading activities of the Prophet Muhammad in Mecca and Medina in the 7th century to the banks and finance houses of the Arab Gulf today, will know that business is conducted, as everywhere else, on sound capitalist principles. As the greatest authority in this matter, and one of my great inspirations, the late Professor Maxime Bolenson, shown in his great work, Islam and Capitalism, there is no Quranic or authoritative traditional prohibition on the taking of interest, only, as in most religions, a vague condemnation of excess or profiteering, what is known as riba. But Muslim scholars have long differed on what riba means, some combining it to profiteering in essentials like foodstuffs. Nor, in the end, did supposedly Islamic banks of today provide a fundamentally different service. What they do, first, is give a degree of local color or allegiance or affiliation, much as does the Bradford and Bingley Building Society. I would have put, a while ago, Northern Rock or the Chase Manhattan. And secondly, they serve as a more friendly recipient for investors with cash in the straightforward sense that they, do, they ask less questions about where the money comes from, particularly in an era of client identification and due diligence arising since 9-11. Islamic banking is capitalist banking with a different cover, a means in the end of ensuring that more money, whether it comes from the exports of the oil producers or from Afghanistan, is put into circulation. As the British ambassador to one of the Gulf states put it to me, Islamic banking is a way of getting money out from underneath the bed. Its relation to tradition, sanctity, the Quran, and all that is purely presentational. And may I make a somewhat more polemical note. If Islamic authority and virtue, what is often misleadingly and vaguely referred to as Sharia, prohibit excess profits, then what on earth are we to say about the exorbitant and in terms of production costs totally unjustified increases in the price of oil? If ever there was a case of riba, of profiteering excess, to which all Islamic oil producers happily subscribe, it is the rent that OPEC and its free riders like Putin's Russia extract from the sale of oil, 
and not a Sharia peep is to be heard from anybody on this matter. Finally, let me mention a more general point, and I think one of the most interesting things that has emerged in recent years from the work being done in IR departments on the Middle East. Inevitably, when I was a student, given the availability of PRO records and of colonial preoccupations, and also the preoccupations of the Cold War, we focused on the role of external powers. And of course, Marxists reproduced that because they were talking about imperialism and how the regions and politics of the, of the region were controlled by the British or the Americans or the French or the Russians or whatever it may be. But in recent years, a, a very solid and diverse body of literature has emerged, some of it comparative, some of it on specific countries, be it Iran or Israel or Turkey or Egypt, Saudi Arabia, showing that really since the 1950s, the states of the Middle East have exercised an enormous degree of autonomy, not only over their own domestic affairs, but also over their foreign policy. Even in the Cold War, if you ask why and how did Israel go to war in, say, 1956 or 67, the Arabs go to war in 48 or 73, why did Saddam attack Kuwait and attack Iran, why did Morocco and Algeria go to war, then the external context is there, but it is very, very limited as explanation. So that much as people in the region blame the outside world and blame outside powers, regional states have in their financial, political, but also their international and military dealings, much greater autonomy. And by the same token, the outside world has much less influence. I'm all for Europe having a foreign policy. I'm a staunch European. But I don't think we should exaggerate what Europe can achieve we told the Palestinians not to elect Hamas, and they elected Hamas. We told the Lebanese to form a coalition government, they paid absolutely no notice. We told the Israelis not to build a wall, they built it. We told the Iranians not to keep on bobbing and weaving over the nuclear issue, they're still bobbing and weaving. We told the Egyptians to democratize, they took absolutely no notice. We told the Afghans to stop growing drugs, they call on growing drugs, and so forth. So we told the Turks to be nice to the Kurds, I haven't seen it yet. Um, so we have to be limited. There are things we can do. I think we, can, we should welcome Turkey into Europe. I think we should keep a level and firm hand involved in the Arab-Israeli question while realizing it's the locals who are going to sort it out. I think we should do something in Darfur. But I also think that we should not overstate how in a post-Cold War or post-colonial world external powers can influence things. But here we come to the third major factor and the big question mark over the Middle East today. Maybe it is not external powers and maybe it is not regional states that will drive it. Maybe it is a third kind of actor, non-state actors, movements from below, some peaceful, some violent, which pose the greatest alternative and the greatest challenge to existing states and orders. We have seen in the Iranian Revolution of 30 years ago, in the spread of Muslim Brotherhood influence in many key states such as Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Kuwait, most spectacularly in the rise of Al-Qaeda and related or inspired organizations, in the radicalization of tens of thousands of young men. It is these forces, not the governments of the region, not London, Moscow, Washington, which hold the future of the region in their hands. And this inevitably increases our sense of uncertainty. If you are sitting in power in a Middle Eastern country today, in Baghdad, or Kabul, or Islamabad, or Beirut, or Damascus, or Riyadh, or Ramallah, or Amman, to name 
but the most obvious eight capitals, but a third of the total, this question, the very survival of the current state, must be the dominant uncertainty about the future. And to repeat, this is not an issue of culture or history or traditional identity. It's a question of power and closely related to this, of course, continued control of and access to wealth. Once again, I would submit the Middle East turns out to be not so different. To conclude, first, I would emphasize that in our conception of contemporary social science, in our, in our strategy for institutions and departments working on this, the study of regions and specific countries, along with the study of history, should be an integral and long-term part of the LSE's provision and program. Secondly, I would submit that the Middle East is, as much as any other region of the world, susceptible to and creatively welcoming of analysis in general social science terms, as it is of universal rights and responsibilities, as enshrined in international law and conventions, even as, through its own history and state system, it provides challenges and contrapuntal enrichment to the theories that are involved. Finally, the LSE should, as part of its overall and periodic review program, look at the teaching and research on regions and countries that are currently carried out within the school and where substantial and credible long-term deficiencies exist. They should take measures through relevant committees, through departments, through the initiatives of the central administration, through fundraising to remedy these deficiencies. As was once said by Gorbachev, if not now, when? And if not, we who? Thank you and good evening. Thank you very much, Fred. Very wide-ranging discussion. And we do have some time for questions. It's clear that Fred could take his questions in several forms of Arabic, Hebrew, Farsi, and indeed Catalan, uh, but it would help me if they were in English. Um, and if you could give your name. And there's one right in the third row, if you could get the microphone over. Thanks. Hello, um, Mehdi Musi from Goldsmiths. Um, what possibilities do you see for the like, intellectualization of the Arab region in terms of the Arabs themselves? Well, like, no, not just the Arabs, the Middle Eastern region, because this is what we're discussing. What was the first in terms of what? In terms of uh, understanding, for them to, to like, be more aware of their situation, of their control over themselves, like you said, they've become more autonomous than we think they, they are. And uh, as, far, as far as I see it, it's, it's on a governmental level. People don't think they have as much control as you see it because you're an academic living in the West and they're an uneducated, you know, oppressed proletariat, to be honest. Thank you. There's no easy answer to this question, but I think that one has to go step by step and even I would say in most straightforward professorial mode, country by country. Uh, if you're talking to somebody from Iran, try and show why Iran has the economic resources and the human resources and some of the strategic advantages to play a more independent and I would hope responsible role and not shoot their mouth off about everything uh, under the sun. Um, Iranians are not the most modest of people, as I'm sure all Iranians would agree. 
Uh, at the same time, I think that we have a role to play, and I mean not just we from Britain or the West, but an institution like this with people from the region working here, working with us, to show in our writings, both historic and contemporary, that this is the case. But there are clear preconditions for this being diffused in the region, and one of them is the free press and free access to information. Now, the press in the Arab world is highly censored, even that which is produced in London. To give an example, there are two scholars working in London on Saudi Arabia, Dr. Mayamani, daughter of the former Minister of Oil, and, and Professor Madawi al-Rashid of King's College, who is a descendant of the dynasty that ruled Arabia before the Saudis came 100 years ago. No Saudi newspaper is allowed to review their books, not even ones printed in London. I'll give a simple example. Uh, in many of the Gulf states, there used to be book fairs where relatively free sale of books published in Arabic, mainly printed in Beirut, was permitted. With the growth of influence of the Muslim brothers, uh, and in the Gulf they tend to take their lead from Egypt, which is the, not the organizational center, because there isn't one, but the spiritual center of the Muslim brothers, the number of censored books increases. So, for example, basically any book by Islam, and Islam includes any Muslim country, by people who are either liberal Muslims or non-Muslims, and that clearly includes myself, are banned. Uh, but even relatively liberal Arab writers, Fatima Manisi, or Muhammad Arkun, or many, many others, Kalam Makia, you name it, novels, critical novels, all of them are banned, and increasingly so in these countries. So these are issues on which one can push, and which I think one should. But the broader sense that everything is controlled from outside is very, very deep. I think you hinted that in what you said, and this will take time to overcome. But it's interesting that in Iran, which is a country with great history of conspiracy theories, and there were conspiracies in Iranian history, not as many as people thought, uh, among the younger people, this conspiracy theory sentiment is much, much less. People blame their own rulers or their own countries. They're not blaming the rest of the world, and this is a step forward. Yeah, one uh, right in the middle of the front row here in Libyan Green. <coughs> Fred, um, thank you very much. Um, I'm Jake Omani from Strand Poly, uh, a.k.a. KCL. Um, certainly to a non-LSE student, you've, uh, you've sold LSE. Uh, <laughs> sold. <laughs> definitely uh, should maybe uh, go into sales. Um, my question is, you, you alluded to many of your students and LSE students out there who've got jobs. Many of them <laughs> would seem to be probably foreign students when they came to LSE, so home country students. My question is, presumably your love and your passion for the Middle East comes from your experience kind of at its earliest stages. How has our actions as Britain and America, for instance, how have our actions and possibly the animosity and reporting in uh, Europe and the West affected the British students going and experiencing the Middle East? And how will that, will it potentially affect future academic endeavour? There's a very interesting... First of all, thank you for your kind words. I mean, let me just say very briefly, my own interest in the Middle East, I have no family, religious, or other connection with the Middle East at all whatsoever. I come from a generation who grew up in the 60s who were in a general way interested in the Third World. My brother 
is interested in Korea, China, and Japan. My wife is a specialist on Latin America. Others were interested in Southern Africa. So that came first, plus a general interest in other languages and cultures, those two things. As it happened, I met people from the Middle East when I was at a language school in my gap year in Germany, because my father was a businessman. He said, you've got to go and learn German. You're not going to learn that on the beach or in a bar. You've got to go and study it grindly, properly. So I was put on the top of a mountain in Bavaria for six months with lots of Arabs <laughs> and Persians <coughs> 44 years ago. Uh, I can still feel the cold. Um, <laughs> And, from, and then one thing led to another. So I think I just say that by way of background. And I've always tried to maintain and encourage students to have a comparative perspective. If I was dictator for a day, I would forbid students to do dissertations or PhDs on their own country and do something else. But in course, with nationalism and with the prospect of going home and with familiarity, that's not a realizable goal. Let me put a more de- even more depressing point to you. Of the, st- of the over now 25 to 30 PhD students I've had from Middle Eastern countries, very, very few have gone back. I've had 15 Iranians, and only one has gone back, and he was recently put on trial for contact with suspicious foreign elements. I don't think it's... Which is not me, but... Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and that is a serious problem. Uh, Secondly, until recently, I would have said that it was possible for British students to go and study Arabic or travel around uh, in different countries. But I'm told, and particularly my journalistic colleagues, Roger Hardy from the BBC is here, that things have got much worse in the last three or four years, both because of the war in Iraq and also because of the rise of fundamentalist sentiment. Certainly something I've noticed, that really for the first, my Arabic isn't wonderful, but I can hold my own in Arabic. I can go on Jazeera television. I can talk for an hour in what I call semi-Brezhnevite Arabic about international affairs, even if I can't follow a football match. Um, but I've no, and in, for a long time, people in the Arab world had the same reaction that they have. Oh my God, how nice you speak our language. Are you interested? You know, da, da, da. But the last few years, people say, why have you learned our language? You must be a spy. Why are you trying to get... Why, why, it, it, this is a shift which I've not noticed before. Even once on Saudi television, the guy live said, you must be a spy. Speaking, I was speaking Arabic with you. Most people don't have that. Most people in the Arab world are delighted that you're an interest. And if, you, if we're talking about respect, a very simple thing is to show some knowledge of the history of that country, of the cities, of the culture, of the writers. It, just, it doesn't have to be a lot, but it's that you're not simply coming and imposing uh, your own views, although to have your own views is also, in my view, a form of respect, as it is being a teacher. Um, so that I think that, that, but it is getting more difficult. But I also think that we have to take this very seriously. Let me take you the example of Turkey. Here we have this extraordinarily rapidly changing country of 70 million people. The argument of whether Turkey is part of Europe or not is ridiculous. Turkey has been part of Europe for 800 years. And Turkey is an applicant to the European Union, in my view, legitimately so. Every year, tens of thousands of people leave school and university in Turkey knowing English or French or German, now mainly, as ever in the Middle East, usually only English, but a foreign language. In all my 40 years of working on the region, in academic context and policy terms, I've met four or five Western people who actually learned decent Turkish. Four or five here in Germany and the US. That's it. So the, 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 the asymmetry of interest and engagement is very, very striking. And it won't easily be solved, particularly because of the broader contextual changes I allude to of, on the one hand, the depreciation of area studies and languages in academic life, 
You don't say that you've learned a foreign language to get promoted to any university I know because it's just discounted. Or that you, an article cites things in different languages, it doesn't count compared to being published in the, whatever it is, Mid-Atlantic Journal of Inverted Abstraction. Sorry. Um, um, but, I, but also the much broader phenomenon in our society of young people simply not learning foreign languages. I mean, I was taught foreign languages in secondary school and on that basis blasted off to try and learn Persian and Arabic as in that way. If you don't have that formation, it's much more difficult. So these are all factors. Uh, but I can say it's extremely rewarding. I was giving a lecture recently to the Arab community in London, Arab diplomats, and I just said, look, I've been in going to the Arab world with all the frustrations for 40 years, but I really only want to say one thing, which is thank you. You know, the experience of going there, meeting people, engaging with the students, getting get involved in the arguments uh, has been a very unique one, and for that I'm very grateful. The uh, editor of the Mid-Atlantic Journal of Inverted Abstraction is, I think, in the audience, but I, uh, I, I won't give him an opportunity to respond. Um, who else would like to chip in? Yes, over here, in the sort of ready brown, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Richard Schwartz, LSE alumnus. Fred, you mentioned a number of um, thinkers who've contributed significantly to the academic understanding of the Middle East region, Maxime Rolinson, Bernard Lewis, Professor Kaduria. I wonder if I could prod you to say where you think any of them went wrong. So what was their big mistake? Well, you're drummed out of the, one of the <laughs> I, I, am, I am a secular person. I don't believe in God. But I, first of all, having observed human beings over more than 60 years, I see no correlation between people's virtue and decency and whether they're religious or not. So I'm not, on a personal level, I'm not against believers at all. Uh, and secondly, one of the things I like about religions, at least the Catholicism I learned as a child in Ireland, but also about Islam, is the way in which it just makes life a little bit, it's far from being fanatical, it's about making life a little bit easier. I mean, these Muslim expressions like, God is merciful, Allah Karim. You know, my son knows this, because I'd say, Dad, you know, where are my sandwiches, or whatever it is, and I'd say, well, God is merciful. Or students say, where is your essay? Have you marked my essay? And I'd say, God is merciful, Allah Karim. <laughs> um, or the use of the expression, if God wills, you know, inshallah. But one of the phrases which you find in the novels of Nagib um, Mahfouz, when couples are quarreling, usually the husband will say, Yazis and darlings, Al-Kimalillah, only God is perfect. You know, only God is perfect. Which can be an excuse, but it's also relevant. And so my reply would be, only God is perfect. Let me say something about Lewis. I was a student of Lewis's at SOAS. I attended his lectures and was impressed and remain enormously impressed by his erudition. Nobody else has the deep knowledge of the major Middle Eastern languages, not just in the political, historical, but in the literary that he has. Um, and his early works, the Arabs in history, the emergence of modern Turkey, uh, are really major works. I think that he went wrong in two, and, I, and I'm not a Lewis basher, I'm not going to get involved in denouncing Lewis for this out of the other. Um, I think that, A, uh, he did fall into this I wouldn't say trap, but this tendency to see the Middle East as unique. For example, he wrote a book on slavery. You'd never know read a book on slavery. There were slaves anywhere else in the world. Uh, he wrote a book on the political language of Islam, which implied that the etymology, which is, of course, what all Muslims also believe, that the etymology of words explains the contemporary meaning. I mean, a simple example is the Arabic word for politics is siyasa, 
And the origin of the word is, to, is training a horse with a rope, breaking in a horse. It's, ah, look, you see, the Arabs are not Democrats. They think politics is about breaking in horses. It's got nothing to do with it. Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci, the great Italian Marxist, said uh, the word disaster is in origin a technical term in astrology for a dark, evil star that affects human behavior. But when you use the word disaster today, you're not subscribing to the theory of astrology. I mean, to take an atavistic example, it, the, the croissant, French croissant, is shaped like the Muslim uh, half moon because it was to celebrate the defeat of the Muslims at the gate, the Turks at the gates of Vienna in 1683. But if you have a croissant, you're not subscribing to it. So <laughs> any more than if you were Christian, you're denouncing Christians, from which the word originally comes, etc., etc. So I, I think that he fell into, into the, what is loosely termed. I wouldn't like. I don't use the word Orientalism, but I, Orientalism. I think also something happened to Lewis in the United States, which I do not understand. Um, I have to say, Lewis has refused to speak to me for 40 years. So I, uh, but I've reviewed his books with respect. Uh, I also criticised them, and would continue to do so. But were I to meet him, the question I'd like to ask, and if Kaduri was alive and people. The leitmotif of all that generation who taught me was don't, I mean we were socialists and we believed in liberation uh, uh, was you can't change the Middle East, don't try and democratize it, don't try and have peasant communes, don't try and trade unions there's never, I remember being told there's no such thing as revolution in the Middle East, the Muslims are incapable of it. So from this sort of ahistorical, very static view of the Middle East, which was the, the leitmotif how come that he then supported the um, introduction of democracy in Iraq? I, gen I don't know the answer. Um, um, and so, but, you know, the verdict is still out. But I would say something else, and I haven't, I'm not just saying this as the years are advancing. I think all of us, whatever we write on, should be judged by our best books. Not by what we said on television, not by what we said in some interview, not by some pop book we wrote, but, you know, Okay, these are the three of the best things I've written in life. Judge me on that. And I would say that of Lewis as well. And of that he comes out very highly. Rodinson was a different case, much forgotten, unfortunately, but a very, very brilliant person whose main speciality was ancient South Arabian languages, in fact. Uh, but his book on Islam and capitalism and some of his other books are very, very, very powerful books and had a huge influence on me. And he had no truck whatsoever for religious regression and obscurantism and all this stuff. And, and I think that's much needed. We'll take one more, I think, because we're otherwise running out of time. Yes, uh, Chris Brown in the fourth um, one. Thanks, Fred. Some people argue nowadays that the European left and the, or the British left has lost its way and has become associated with Islamist ideas and in a sense has, uh, has taken anti-imperialism as opposed to anti-fascism as, uh, as its leitmotif. Do you have any sympathy for that analysis? Do you think it is incompatible to be anti-fascist and anti-imperialist at the same time? I think that the... I mean, as you know, in terms of general political theory and ideas, the leitmotif of my own work and my ongoing interest is in broad issues of internationalism solidarity. I gave my inaugural lecture in this very room 21 years ago on the subject of internationalism, after which the then director Patel said, well, that was a very good inaugural, but don't give any more, which I, <laughs> advice which I have taken. Patel, who also, may I say, carried out the greatest put-down 
of LSE professors I've ever seen, because in the very first meeting of the professorial committee, we were discussing pensions. And he was getting more and more irritated and playing with his wristband. And he said, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to stop this conversation. I cannot take this issue seriously. You see, I'm a Hindu, and I believe in reincarnation. So pensions don't really matter to me. <laughs> but I, in that vein, I, would, I think that the rot, the confusion of solidarity and anti-imperialism with indulgent support for nationalist and chauvinistic movements goes back a very long way. And, of course, it has its roots also in the Stalinist period. I remember seeing the great ideologue of the Communist Party, Palm Jutt, address the 1969 Congress of the British Communist Party in St. Pancras Town Hall. And the issue then was the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. And he got up and he said, you know, which he, of course, supported. He said, comrades, we British communists have always been internationalists. In 1920, we stood firm over Georgia. In 1940, we stood firm over Finland. In 1956, we stood firm over Hungary. And in 1968, we stand firm over Czechoslovakia. All four absolutely dreadful indulgences of Russian invasions and militaristic adventures. But I think there is something else, and this goes back to the 60s, which is the indulgence in the name of solidarity of ideologies which are themselves totally uninternationalist, either nationalist or religious in character. Uh, an interesting part of my own life and one that I've been reflecting on a lot recently is that in my political and intellectual life the emergence of the Arab-Israeli question as an issue on the British left coincided with the emergence of the Irish question because they both exploded in the late 60s and most people on the left sided with one group or another but there are those of us who took up a different view, which is say, look, both sides have got a lot wrong with them, and there are rights and wrongs and so on, but there are two communities, each of which have their own rights. Uh, and I have to say that the discussion of the Irish question served very interestingly to clarify, in my view, views on the Arab-Israeli question. And the, the conclusion, which goes to the real question, was that you, can, you, of course, you're in support of human rights, you're in support of independence, but you cannot uncritically endorse nationalist or other movements all over the world, which is why I come up with this least rough and ready term complex solidarity, not simple solidarity. I think something has gone seriously awry uh, with regard to the Middle East, but I think that the origins don't just lie in the Iraq war. I think they go back to very one-sided endorsement of Arab nationalism on the Palestinian question, uh, also, I have to say, to long years of endorsement of Khomeini's revolution, which I fell out very quickly, uh, and also, this is more complicated, on the whole question of the Afghan war. I was one of the few people, along with Jonathan Steele and one of the people in America, who did not simply think that fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan was the best thing. I was in favor of a negotiated solution. In fact, I was sent on a plausibly deniable mission by the UN in October 1980 to Kabul to discuss with the Afghan government and the Soviet embassy there the possibility of a negotiated settlement. Uh, and in the end, that's what we got. Nothing much to do with me. It all came later in April 1988. Uh, but most people supported the Mujahideen. Uh, and, of course, we now have what we have. But I certainly, I, th I think that those who are uncritically support uh, these movements and states 
end up in trouble. To take a very different example, I've been in Cuba three or four times. I know quite a lot about Cuba. I've lectured in Cuban institutions. Uh, I don't want to see Cuba become the 51st state of the USA, but the uncritical support for Cuba and the mythification of Che Guevara I find totally incomprehensible so for anybody who knows Cuba. Uh, and I think there's another case of the same problem, but uh, with obvious variations. Fred, thank you very much. We did say that we'd wind up at, uh, at, at 8 and we're almost there. And my only consolation to you is that there is a second show, um, which will be different, uh, but related, uh, on the 30th of January. And you're all welcome to that. But in the interim, as we reach half time uh, in this uh, match, uh, let me ask you to show your appreciation of a fantastic evening. Thank you.